Welcome to the Learning Shared Podcast. Hello, my name is Alan Wood and I'm your host. Thanks very much for listening. So Learning Shared is a space for anyone with an interest in supporting the needs of vulnerable learners in our society, including those with special educational needs and disabilities. We'll be hearing from and talking with a wide range of colleagues and stakeholders, including teachers, specialist practitioners, school leaders, researchers, as well as parents and carers. They'll be sharing creative, inspiring ideas, effective practice and things they've learned along their journey. With that in mind, please get in touch if you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way. You can visit us at www.learningshared.org or tweet us at underscore learning shared. The Learning Shared podcast is brought to you by Evidence for Learning and the EFL Send community. This is a growing community of teachers, practitioners, school leaders, researchers and academics that support children, young people and adults with special educational needs and disabilities, or indeed any form of additional learning needs. You can find out more about the EFL Send community and Evidence for Learning at www.evidenceforlearning.net. I hope you enjoy this episode. So it's my pleasure today to welcome to this podcast, Bev Beverly Cobill. Um, Bev has had 20 years experience in special education, but particularly in the last 10 years, Bev's uh, developed a great expertise around children with complex needs. Those that, to give them the proper title, children with complex learning difficulties and disabilities. Bev was part of the DfE funded project on complex learning difficulties and disabilities, part of the team that worked nationally and internationally, pulling that piece of research together to help schools understand this new generation of children that they are increasingly working with. And in particular, Bev uh, had a, a leading role within that team in developing the pedagogy around engagement that went on to become a, a formative assessment model, what we would know as the engagement profile and scale. So, Bev, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about your current role at Child's Grove School and the, the remit around complex needs that you have there? Okay, thank you. Um, yes, I've got quite a diverse role, really, within uh, Chad's Grove School. Um, I support teachers, TAs with uh, pupils who are termed complex and they find difficult to engage for learning. So to be clear, just to be clear on uh, describing children with complex needs, we mean those children in whom two or more disabling conditions coexist. Um, to help me guide, um, I use the engagement framework known as, uh, previously known as uh, E4L from the CLDD research. This is now referred to as the engagement assessment for pupils with severe or profound and multiple learning difficulties, recommended by the Rochford Review. The engagement process is a, an ideal intervention to put uh, the spotlight on, you know, onto our children. Uh, it really um, puts that lens, and uh, you can you can really unpick uh, how uh, they can demonstrate engagement. Um, also, I work for the school support services, 
which has various teams within the service uh, on part of the CCN team, which is Communication Complex Needs. Uh, Mark Loveday is uh, Deputy Head and Head of that service. And we're driven by improving outcomes for children with SEND and additional needs. The use of evidence-based pupil assessment, individualised support approaches, targeted feedback and positive pupil outcomes allow schools to see the significant impact specialist teams can have. And for my part, I use the engagement model as an assessment tool. Mm-hmm. It's originally had seven aspects, uh, as we know, responsiveness, curiosity, anticipation, discovery, initiation, persistence and investigation. Um, it now has five, what's called five areas, exploration, realisation, anticipation, persistence and initiation. And those reflect the Rochford view, Bev, is that right? They do, they do. Um, the model uh, should be used to assess pupils' progress and development on a regular basis throughout the year. Continuous cycle of assess, plan, do and review that takes place, which supports the same style of our CCN reports. So the engagement model is a resource for educators, including therapists um, and families have used it within their home. All right. Um, Yes, and it's been very positive. And it really helps families understand and unpick their children as well. You know, it's very difficult uh, for families to try and understand their children. You know, they're their children at the end of the day and it's, uh, they've got to start looking at different ways. But it helps explore and identify uh, effective ways of how to teach pupils. So it helps the families understand their child as a learner? Yes, absolutely. Yes, it's, yeah. uh, it helps us support them and it helps uh, that importance of collaboration yeah. with parents. So it's, it helps formulate next steps, which enables staff and family to develop a learning plan. And in the recovery curriculum paper, Bev, we actually talk about um, engagement as the liberation of intrinsic motivation. Do you do you feel in your work you see that dynamic? Absolutely, yes. Um, it's uh, for families, uh, especially uh, supporting their their child who's out of school is often very difficult for, for families to get people to support them. So the, the um, engagement process really does help um, motivate and uh, give hope, really. That's great. And again, one of the phrases we've used in the, uh, the think piece about the recovery curriculum would be about um, engagement supporting at times that process of re-engagement and yes. bringing children back to that status that they deserve as, a, as an engaged fully authentic learner, um, would that reflect your experience? Yes, it does. It does. Uh, a lot of uh, the children that I work with, as I say, are out of school. Yeah. And so the stress, anxiety is usually the cause of a pupil needing to disengage from their learning. And in some cases, there is extreme distress at the thought of going to school 
behaviour might be different in school compared to home. So schools then struggle to understand because they often see a pupil who is conforming to the school structure. They do, they do not see how hard it is to get that child to school. So they are disengaged. And uh, if they are disengaged, their mental health is fragile. And, and again, mental health has been a, a major theme, as you know, from in the recovery curriculum. Yes. That, um, that, that whole series of loss and trauma, um, but particularly anxiety. And, and we know, again, I know you, know you worked with us on the, um, the neuroscience aspects of the Complex Needs Project. And we, we came to a conclusion, if I recall properly, Bev, that the anxious child is not a learning child. Yes, that is absolutely true, that, you know, the anxious child is not a learning child. You know, as I say, mentally, they are very fragile and they just cannot face the learning environment and, and all that goes with it. It occurs to me, Bev, in listening to you there, that, um, you know, the work you've been doing has been, you've been very much collaborating with parents. They've been your co-partners in the education of their child. You've been offering education in the home. You've been doing that bridging between school and home, home and school. So in some ways, you'd have been very well prepared for the demands that the profession has had to face in this time of managing COVID-19 children out of school, but with an extended responsibility by teachers to the children learning in their homes. Yes, it's, uh, that's very true. I'm actually, you know, working with families now that I think schools will soon be facing a similar dilemma with a lot more pupils. When we become involved, it's uh, usually when schools have implemented all their knowledge to support families and uh, families have by this time seen numerous professionals which has had a detrimental effect on the child or young person um, because, you know, the amount of professionals that are visiting the home and low expectations, but then parents have very high expectations of, of seeing a new professional. So I always have to make it very clear that uh, I do not have a magic wand and, uh, you know, it will be a very slow process, as it will be, I think, when the children return to school in this current climax. Um, in the recovery curriculum, one of the, the five levers, lever three, is about transparent curriculum, which is about the co-construction, the co-creation of the curriculum for and with the child. But I've been saying to schools, you can't just snatch the responsibility back. We discharge the responsibility now for nine, three months or more to, to, to families, to parents, um, and we need to think about that partnership. Have you got any tips and advice for, for schools as they begin to assimilate the children back into the school system, but taking them back from the parent as the educator? Um, well, I think, you know, if, if people, the engagement model, uh, for me, it's a crucial tool. It helps guide me the next step. The process helps promote emotional resilience for the child. For some pupils, academically, they, they may have been doing very well uh, prior to uh, COVID. Um, but their mental health may be very fragile now in this current time and uh, the assessment embraces SEMH, so which gives insight to what the pupil needs to help re-engage in a, a learning environment or to re-engage with their family. So very much that focus on relationships, which is the first of the five levers, that's crucial to your work? 
It is. Um, as Level 1 states, we cannot expect our pupils to be rushing back through the door. Uh, some may rush back and be relieved. Some might be slightly nervous and completely anxious. We do not fully know what emotions they have gone through, you know, and have they had opportunities to talk through these emotions at home? Some may not. Yeah. And, uh, and it worries me that... Um, some of our children, especially in uh, special school, you know, the PPE has been granted. Um, and what might that look like to, to those very vulnerable pupils? That, the uh, PPE for, for Chad's growth stuff has been granted, is that? Yes, it has. It has. Uh, Worcestershire have granted that. And we do have very vulnerable children that, uh, you know, can they see past that mask? Can they see who... who is greeting them. It is very worrying. And that's because Chadsgrove would have children who are medically fragile, whereas perhaps other schools who are um, special schools without that population may not have been granted the, the PPE. So, not have done, yeah. 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 So you, you've mentioned their emotional well-being in your work, and, and you know, we know now that your work is often home-based or community-based, which again yes. is one of our, our levers, five levers within the recovery curriculum. Um, and I've been listening to parents in recent weeks of mainstream children and special needs children saying, you know, they've had some great activities to do, but it's been a lot of maths, English, literacy, numeracy, science, that sort of thing they've had. Do you think now the time is coming where we need to be offering activities around emotional well-being? Yes, I do. Um, and, uh, and I think giving them the space also, uh, just to mention um, Matthew uh, Carpenter, he was part of the ASCL Webinar 6, Supporting Vulnerable Children. He talked about space, which was uh, really important. And it's something schools actually need to plan uh, uh, straight away. You know, that's the first initial thing. You know, have we got space for the children to uh, to be able to go and have time to talk with with whoever they feel confident to talk to? Um, so that's really important. Um, having people that they know that they can trust also. So identifying that. The uh, recovery curriculum talks of uh, loss and structure mm. and loss of routine, uh, which are the two of the five losses. Um, and so structure, structure is essential within any classroom. And we've been asking families to try and implement similar structure. Um, they have been encouraged to establish clear routines and for homeschooling their children. Some may not have been able to do that, so there's the loss there. Mm. Um, so um, there are a few resources maybe that um, uh, people could look at, such as the happiness boxes and, uh, and, and various uh, strategies like that. Tell us more about happiness box, Beth. Okay, so uh, the happiness boxes, um, uh, you and I have just, as you know, uh, put together a, a fact sheet uh, and Alan has got that fact sheet on for uh, the website. Um, so it gives a step-by-step -step, uh, understanding of how to put the boxes together and it also gives a good rationale about happiness boxes. So I've used them quite a lot, actually. We've used them in school um, for our most distressed children that are 
really struggle to self-regulate themselves. Um, so, you know, the happiness box is coming to play and there may be photos in there. Mm. Um, there might be some sensory objects, um, something to, um, to eat maybe. There's a, on the fact sheet, there's an example and there's some little raisins, um, a box of raisins. There might be a card game, some ribbon, Anything really that they that that helps them to to actually calm and get into a happier frame of mind. It may, it, sorry, I was just going to ask if you've used those happiness boxes for the uh, children, young people you've worked with that are not in a school situation, but you're in the process of re-engaging them. Have you used them as an intervention there? Yes, I have. Um, I've used them numerous times actually, and. Uh, they are really successful. The, the, the box, it's exactly how the fact sheet uh, describes how to put it together and uh, encourage the children to look at the box and get parents to teach them how to use the box when their best uh, frame of mood, um, so when they're at their most calmest, yeah. uh, so that they understand when to use it. And, and, and we talk about age appropriateness, something that children and young people get something from that's not quite age appropriate, that's fine if it puts them in a better place. Yes. It's discreet, it's private, it's, that's absolutely fine. Do you think that the happiness box, when you going through this process of re-engagement becomes a bit like a security blanket that it's something they know and have got by them, it's tangible? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's portable, so they can transition with them to school. It doesn't have to be in a box. It can be in a bag. And we've had children leave Chad's Grove and, and the thought now is uh, to send a box with them so it becomes a memory box as well. Yeah. remind them of happy times we've actually done that with one of our external pupils that I I worked with she had a box put together uh, it was full of Demi Lovato um, because that was her main interest and that's what made her happy I know all about Demi Lovato now after (laughs) putting that box together with her so uh, yes yes it can be personalised Beth from what you're saying yes and, and you've just gone from talking about sensory things through to Demi Lovato. So yes. that being age-appropriate as well. It's not a childish activity. It's no. A, it's it's a, a support to the emotional well-being, the emotional resilience, which you've also mentioned. And that emotional self-regulation, I think, is hugely important because our children often do not have things to hand that enable them to self-regulate. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's very good for you know the young young people. It can have herbs in there, or some uh, there's a, a books beyond words book in there. Going to church, you know, if there's it's if it's a family that attend church on a regular basis, and the, the child is or young person is having a bit of a wobble, you know, they may like to go to that book. Saying that, it could be there's also uh, in one of the boxes the official highway code, you know, because yeah. Yeah. my interest on, uh, on the highway code and it helps calm. So, what's the problem? Bev, that in the context now of COVID 19 and children returning to school, that if teachers and teaching assistants are preparing happiness box for and with the child, what that child chooses to put into the box 
can tell you something about the emotional state of the child in, in, in a, the roughest of ways. It almost becomes like a screening of, of, of in, emotional state, because, dependent on what they select to put in there, whether it's something tactile, whether it's something that has a sense of smell, whether it's something that is from their earlier childhood and maybe they've um, regressed emotionally and are hanging on to a, a favourite toy from their very early childhood. So, in, in fact, if the teacher is vigilant and watches what the child puts in, they can learn a lot at the point of re-entry, do you think, to the school situation? They can. They can. Um, you know, the, there's uh, one child I worked with and um, she she loved the photos of, of her uh, a dog that um, she'd not known that long, but she she loved the dog. You know, it was, uh, it was a nice memory. So and she used to get extremely upset, and the, just the photos of the dog used to help calm her. Um, a mirror, just uh, kissing herself, and then getting you to to kiss the mirror. Also, uh, just it's amazing, really, how it, how it can help understand the child. As you say, it is like self screening. And you've done and you've done some um, school based inquiry of your own, haven't you? Where you've looked at um, using emotional well being journals and and uh, other uh, objects and activities that support emotional resilience in our children. I think it was published as the Inquiring Minds Project. That's correct. Yes, it is. Um, Chas Grove's focus is always looking at improving ways to support uh, pupils' mental health. Um, not only their staffs as well, but we, we did the Inquiring Minds Project, which took place in 2015. Um, and it was part of a, a positive mental health curriculum development. Um, so, yes, the, we use the journals that uh, it was written by an author called Marilyn Tucknott, but published by uh, Butterfly. So they were originally designed for supporting mainstream pupils' mental health and well-being. So we wanted to see if the journals could be effectively adapted for our, our pupils. Um, and the key points of, of the journals was to find out more about the children themselves and their emotions, feel good about themselves, understand that there is no right or wrong way to be, just just their way, um, understand what they can do to help change how they feel and how to discover really how they can be mentally healthy. Um, so, for instance, Key Stage 1 Journal talked about a smile and um, for some of our children, just that term, smile, was difficult yeah. to grasp. On the front of the article, there is a, a happiness box that uh, was used for one of the pupils to communicate what made her smile and, and happy. And so in the box, it had uh, quite a rough textured material. She didn't like them too smooth. She liked them all rough. Um, so that, that was uh, really good. Um, we also discussed colours and rainbows that identified pupils, really identified their emotions through colour. I think the insights you've just shared from that Inquiring Minds project would probably be helpful to colleagues um, who are obviously going to have a major focus on promoting positive mental health when our children return to school. So we will make the Inquiring Minds uh, article 
available, Bev, on uh, www.recoverycurriculum.org. And the happiness box rationale is also available for listeners on that website too. So you've got an extensive um, remit, Bev, and and work in a a, a variety of, of settings. What would be your final piece of advice to those colleagues listening to this in terms of promoting positive mental health and emotional well-being, building that emotional resilience when our children and young people return to school? I think, um, like Matthew said, you know, give them space, listen, uh, prepare to uh, have a more relaxed uh, school environment um, because we don't know what the children have gone through. Um, If it helps, social stories are a great uh, resource tool. Um, So if you know of children already, um, send out those social stories that can highlight, you know, uh, the class that they're in and the the teacher and, and their peers put the photographs in and welcoming them back. Um, They're a a great starting point. And, of course, you've already mentioned uh, Tina Ray um, resources are just fantastic. Uh, Tina Ray Nurture UK developed practical boxes for teaching staff. Those 60 mindful minutes, sensory minutes and motivational minutes and the bereavement box, you know, we mustn't forget that... uh, Schools are wanting to celebrate children coming back, but we've also got to be mindful of the um, children that may have gone through bereavement, not only bereavement from school, but uh, there may be families that could have possibly had some form of personal bereavement, family, a family death or something. And I'm glad you mentioned that because further down the line, um, Tina Ray has agreed to make one of these podcasts. So that would be valuable as well as part of this series. When you were talking earlier, Bev, you mentioned the engagement materials and the um, the revisions you've made to the uh, engagement profile. Um, those, I think, are available on the Engagement for Learning website? They are. Um, so um, the it's the Engagement for Learning website, which is e for uh, So that's www.engagement4learning.com. And uh, everything on there is E4L materials, uh, but there is the uh, guide, the government guidelines under the E4L engagement model. There is a button you can uh, press that will take you straight through to listening to Diane Rochford. There's a nice nice video on there of Diane and uh, Janet Thompson and others okay. watch and, and, of course, the guidelines. Thank you. Well, we'll make sure also that all those websites we've mentioned in this podcast are listed on uh, the recoverycurriculum.org website so that people can have links straight away to them. Bev, it's been great to talk to you today. Um, you've given you. some fantastic insights and certainly shared your wisdom of all these years working with children with complex needs. If we thought we had complex needs, children in our population before the pandemic, we're certainly going to know that we have post-pandemic. Thank you for being with us today. Beverly Cobalt, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. You can find more information about the recovery curriculum at www.recoverycurriculum.org. There's links to resources, reference materials, as well as uh, video slide decks. Barry Carpenter's webpage is www.barrycarpentereducation.com. And the homepage for the podcast is www.learningshared.org. You can email us at learningshared at theteachcloud.net or tweet us at underscore learningshared. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And please do get in touch with feedback if you'd like to either suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way. Finally, you're welcome to join the conversation via one of our online communities of practice. We've got groups on Facebook and LinkedIn and details are on the Recovery Curriculum and Learning Shared web pages. You can search for Recovery Curriculum as a group inside Facebook. So for now, thanks again for listening. Stay safe and be well.